right, Andy, it's time for the hardest job of our lives. It Uh-oh. is time for us to cast, of course, <laughs> a fan cast of a quote-unquote live action or maybe an actual live action possible nightmare before Christmas in the future. Whoa. This isn't going to happen. Thank fuck. But at the same time, <laughs> let's say... we have a cruel God. Yeah, I was going to say, let's just say, you know, we're both, you know, teens on Tumblr, just getting really, you know, creative. Let's say in 2013, uh-huh. 2014, who would you put as Oof. each character? And I'm And I'm saying this in a way that is like, we don't have to worry about skeletal structure for Jack Skellington. We can just animate around it. <laughs> oh, like he'd be CGI? Yes. Okay. I'm thinking if you did this, if you like, if Disney had the okay. bad idea. So when you say live action, you mean like how we'd say yeah, Lion how, King is live action? Yeah, how, like, how, how Favreau and company lied about that film not being fully animated. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when that was clearly an animated film, as if Disney was ashamed of an animated film, as if their <laughs> company was not built off of said films. Uh. Oh my gosh! Um, freak. Um, hmm. Jack Skellington. Uh, the um. Here's here here's a here's a choice I would make. Okay. If I were directing this. Uh, Timothy Chalamet. No, ooh, I, ooh, ooh! I'm kidding. Great. I'm kidding. No, great choice. Who's that gonna be? Um, he's gonna, gonna be, be Sally. Yeah. Oh, he's gonna be Sally. Zendaya as Jack Skellington. Uh, of course. <laughs> we're mixing it up. No yeah. one's gonna be mad at that. <laughs> no one's gonna be mad at that at all. You know, Zendaya could be Sally. Timothy Chalamet is Jack Skellington. <sighs> could he sing? Does he? I mean, he can rap. Oh, I knew he you were going to go right Timmy to that. Timmy Tim, little Timmy Tim. I bet he still loves that. That that's <laughs> on the internet. That he is. <laughs> that he. <laughs> hey, that's what got him his big boost. You know, uh, that's what got him Euphoria. Uh, that's Timmy er, Tim <laughs> Chalamet is not Euphoria. <laughs> but Zendaya. Uh, who? If there's any again, this is just a fun bit to start the episode on, and now I'm drawing a blank because I never want um, this to happen. Right, right. On, and on anything, if, if there's any, quote I mean, if unquote, they were gonna, if they were gonna actually live action this, like actual, mm-hmm. you know, in camera, you're gonna do makeup and crap. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could do like a Doug Jones; he'd be a good Jack Skellington. Like I Doug, don't know if he can sing. Doug would do here. Let's let's just make Danny Elfman Jack again. Danny Elfman just, as Jack. Let's just hire him to do the same job again, but older. Yeah. That's, that's kind of been a Disney trend yeah. already. I'm thinking of anything. If the only Christ Alice Howard could be a Sally. Sally. That's not a bad choice, but I think she's more interested in directing right yeah. now. Okay, so she fair. directs the film. Got it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Not that she's a bad director or anything, no, no, no. but I was thinking like, God, if that was it'd be a leap. For that would her. be poor. Well, that would be poor her because it's like that is not. There's no way it would be creative. <laughs> Again, it's it's. We'll talk about it more when we actually talk about the film. But it's just, it's wild to watch the Nightmare Before Christmas now and be like, oh, Disney is taking full ownership, and 30 years ago they were too afraid to distribute it. Yeah, it's kind of. I mean, I'm glad that they fully admit that it's like they produced it and whatnot. But even that's just kind of wild. Right. No, the only thing I can think of, even though it was my joke, and I can't, I just am drawing a blank on any ideas. If anything, that would be kind of interesting is if you did all the Halloween Town stuff, like Lion King full CGI and just kind of go full tilt into the designs and the world and whatnot. Yeah. But then, like, you know, Christmas Town would just be normal people. <laughs> that would just like like the scene where Santa gets brought into Halloween Town. That would be genuinely horrifying if it's just a normal dude amongst yeah. all these horrifying creatures. But oh yeah, whatever. Fuck, I don't. I it's never, not gonna happen. No, it's we not. We don't gonna want happen. it to happen. 
the film has gotten But too... it's a dark fantasy worth living in. <laughs> it truly is. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy. I'm Logan. And I'm Andy. And this is Odd Trilogies, like I said. And on this podcast, we take a trio of films, whether tied by cast and crew, thematic elements, numerical order, and so on. We go through each film and discuss the good, the bad, and the weird surrounding them. Oh, God, I had a yawn. And today... <laughs> I mean, I'm not yawning Logan's because excited. I, I am actually excited. Okay. The reason why I'm yawning is because we went through all three of these back to back to back. <laughs> it's a lot of sitting, despite the fact that these films are mainly under 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking today about a director that I love. I think is a director that is extremely talented and is unfortunate in terms of the amount of filmography he has. Yeah. We're today discussing an animation, just, I think, beloved animation director, Henry Selleck. This is the Rise of Selleck episode. We are discussing 1993's The Nightmare Before Christmas, 1996's James and the Giant Peach, and 2007's Coraline. 2009's Coraline. (laughs) Yes. Henry Selleck, a master of stop motion animation. Yes. Born in Glenridge, New Jersey. He turned 70 this year. It was inspired mainly by, uh, of course, Ray Harryhausen, because, of course, who wouldn't be if you were a weird nerd that liked animation in, like, (laughs) the 70s? Right. Like the 60s and 70s, and when you know, you may know Ray Harryhausen as being just the animation kind of notorious for Clash of the Titans, Jason the Argonauts, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which is like one of you know, one of the defining films for Selleck. But today, we're gonna be talking about mainly his his first three animated projects, mm-hmm. really the things that he is known for the most. Because as of this recording, his latest film has been out for about a week or so, yeah. Which is uh, Wendell and Wild, the Netflix original with uh, Jordan Peele and Keegan Michael Key, and you know, we th- what best way to get out of the spooky season than to go into something that is <laughs> still spooky, but not <laughs> not necessarily yeah, full a fun, on a fun spooky, a fun scary. Yeah, and to go right into Nightmare, I mean, it's one of those situations where what's fascinating about the Nightmare Before Christmas is most people would probably know it as Tim Burton's. The Nightmare right. Before Christmas, <laughs> when in reality, that was actually only added three months before its release. And while Tim Burton is the creator of the story, that the main the main character designs, the you know, he was he co-wrote, I believe, the poetry with Michael McDowell. That was kind of the basis for mm-hmm. the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, he was, and he produced the film. He did produce the film. And he also is one of the rights owners. And he is one of the main reasons why we haven't seen a sequel like a direct video or theatrical, right. thank God. But <laughs> well, th- there is a form of sequel that we can get to in a minute. Yes, <laughs> but the thing about that is that because of just his name, and especially the uh, time that it came out, it is most people just assume Burton directed the film, mm-hmm. almost to the point where it is now nearly thirty years since that film came out, and Henry Selick on tour to talk about his latest film with jordan peele has to still say tim burton did not direct that film (laughs) he was on set for a total of like 10 days so like in terms of nightmare before christmas that is selick's directorial debut that is his film not saying burton didn't have anything to do with it of course conceptually we can say yeah kind of brainchild tim burton but like because the big yeah because the big thing is a lot of the the bits and pieces and the details and the scene mm-hmm. to scene all that is Selleck 
Yeah, but the reason why it's both Selleck and Burton, um, pretty much the two prominent figures of this film, is because when Selleck started doing animation for Disney after going to CalArts, he started as an in-betweener animator for you know films like Pete's Dragon and others and ultimately upgraded or kind of like moved on to doing full animation stuff for Disney films like The Fox and the Hound. Yeah. And met some really, you know, phenomenal people, you know, friends like Joan Ramped and a bunch of other animators at the time. But mainly, you know, in this discussion, he also met a young Tim Burton, mm-hmm. who's also an animator at the time. He was mainly known for his animated film, short film Vincent, right. which he made around that same time. And around the time that Selleck was kind of getting more into the animation process in a lead sense, Burton was concocting this idea of a 30-minute special that was in the vein of the Rankin-Bass, Rudolph <laughs> kind of stop-motion films, but about Halloween and Christmas. Right. Because mainly the you know, the whole premise is like, you know, Burton as a kid was very lonely. He suffered with a lot of just kind of like sadness in terms of not having a lot of friends, being the weird kid, especially <laughs> in California. And so one of his favorite moments is when the togetherness of holidays such as Christmas and Halloween would kind of bring the warmth and the, you know, kind of the friendliness back into you know, life in general. And so he really liked the idea of making a very, you know, on-brand television special about, you know, you know the lovely holidays, but about a holiday you're not usually seeing on television. Yeah. And so he pitched this to Disney, I think, several times. <laughs> and ultimately it didn't kind of go anywhere until ultimately Burton, I believe, got fired from Disney. Yeah. And then left to go do, I don't know if you've heard these films, they're kind of like, you know, underground films like uh, Beetlejuice right. and Batman. Uh, so while he was doing yeah, those, okay. when he was doing those films, you know, Selleck was still at Disney. And then ultimately when it got to the 90s, Burton again wanted to do something with Nightmare, but Disney owned the rights. <laughs> <laughs> so the only way he could do that is if he actually talked to Disney about making a film. And Disney was not interested. Yeah. They thought it was too scary to make, but... Too edgy. But there was one man, one man we have talked about <laughs> a bit on this podcast a while back, especially when we talked about 2D DreamWorks, a man that currently that worked at Disney at the time who was saying, like, you know what, Disney is big enough, we should maybe expand our portfolio and do something more unusual and creative, and that was Jeffrey Katzenberg. Mm-hmm. He's one of the big guys at the time at Disney who was like, you know what, maybe we should try to do Nightmare Before Christmas. Dark Lord of Animation, of Jeffrey Katzenberg. <laughs> And so, yeah, the king of Quibi himself. <laughs> and so, you know, Katzenberg is one of the people to push it. Disney decides they're going to distribute it, but not through Disney themselves, their name brand. They're going to go through Touchstone Pictures, yep. which they owned at the time. And then ultimately, when it went into production, Burton was too busy doing Batman Returns, as well as pre-production for Ed Wood. So after, you know, much, you know, Searching as to who could, you know, take on the project. Of course, it landed on someone who kind of vibed the best with Burton and his style and what Burton wanted to do, which was Henry Selleck. Right. And so here we got. We got 1993's Nightmare Before Christmas, a film that I love <laughs> deeply. It's. It, I mean, this is... I think, I think a lot of people of our age group have a very deep attachment to this movie. This is a five out of five for me, and it's really <laughs> just one of those films where it's just like, I understand with like you know someone seeing this for the first time nowadays being like it's this is it it's like yeah i get that i 100 percent get that but i to me the simplicity is where i think it excels because because of that 
the animation can just be the defining factor of this film. Yeah, and, and it, it absolutely it, is. It really is, and it's also you know a defining factor for many films that come after it, and yeah. entire studios like Leica. Because well, yeah, what's so crazy about this when like Andy and I were talking while we were watching Nightmare, it's just like before this. There was the Harryhausen work on, you know, again, like we said, Clash of the Titans, Jason the Argonauts. Yeah. There were the Rankin-Bass television Rudolph, specials, Christmas Rudolph. Stuff, yeah. They were just like outliers here and there of stop-motion animation. But when it came to mainstream commercial projects yeah. that are mainly stop-motion, there is not a lot right. before Nightmare. Yeah, it was very niche. And then literally after Nightmare, that's when you start getting, you know, Selleck's next film as well as Ardman Animation. Mm, who would go yeah, on to yeah. make, I think, one of the highest-grossing stop-motion films at the time, Chicken Run. Chicken Run. Which would lead... That movie was my childhood. Chicken Run slaps. <laughs> I would love to do an Ardman trilogy at some point if we could find a way. <laughs> but like because of Nightmare, I think it opens up the doors for other companies that want to do animation yeah. such as that. And so, you know, while now watching Nightmare, it is clearly the roughest animation-wise. That does not mean that the film looks bad. It just is very clearly like... It's this is the oldest the start. Really. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> By it, default, I mean, it's, it's a gorgeous movie, and it's uh. one of the you know it's it's just one of those animated films where just like every frame you're like pouring over. Wow, how did they do that part? Oh, yeah. look at that detail there. Wow, that took a ton of time to animate. I bet Andy says that as if it wasn't just me this entire time, just being like, holy crap, I, I had to, I can't pause it, but I want to talk about how I like <laughs> this little bit they did. Um, like, yeah, it's it's one of those films you can watch it a hundred times and just find a new thing where it's like, holy fuck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it's also interesting thinking about how ubiquitous and well-known and well-branded this movie is today, considering yes. its reception at the time. Yes, because what's also astounding about this fucking film is that when it came out, in 1993, its opening weekend was just <laughs> under $300,000. <laughs> it was a huge commercial flop. Yeah. Until it started getting re-released years later. Yeah. And it started accumulating money every re-release. And then Disney... It was kind of like they would re-release it like every year or every couple years or something. It was yeah. like... And then like Disney finally took ownership. And yeah. then started like pushing that, and when they did re-releases, I swear they did a 3D release in the last <laughs> 10 to 15 yeah, years. Yeah, I think so. And at the same time as well, it's also the fact that like this is the big thing about Nightmare Before Christmas, especially for our generation. It was the hot topic era that yeah. just fully cemented just the cultural zeitgeist of fucking Nightmare yeah. in anything, because it went from... Not a single person giving a shit about Nightmare 2 in the next 10, 10 to 15 years after that. People wearing Jack and Sally t-shirts in public with confidence. <laughs> yeah, as and, if, well, and them getting referenced and, yes. you, know, uh, you know, covered in, yeah. in by mainstream musicians like Marilyn Manson. Fallout Boy. Fallout Boy. Boy. I, mean, it's uh, like, I mean, there's a Jack and Sally reference in a Blink-182 song. Yes, there is. There's also, you know, Funko Pops, Funko fucking Pops, yeah. video games, movie references, just... But yeah, I mean, it's it's a whole... It became a whole aesthetic for a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, obviously it owes a lot to Tim Burton and his yes. kind of aesthetic that he mm -hmm. had already cultivated, because this is, again, conceptually very much Tim Burton's uh, conception. Yeah. Um, but, like, but yeah, I mean, this really kind of... Yeah, I mean, I remember in high school, I'm sure you do too, like, 
There's just a whole slew of people wearing Nightmare Before Christmas stuff. If I wasn't afraid to be shamed for doing it, I might have bought a shirt. Sure, sure. I didn't. I'm not lying either. I think I genuinely was worried that people would make fun of me, <laughs> even though I loved that film for so long. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's kind of this fascinating thing where, like, Watching it this time, especially when when we watch films for the podcast, we have, the, I, I mean, at least for me, I go like, okay, especially a film like this, what is the biggest thing that I'm taking away this that I could talk maybe 30 minutes at most about? Mm. And for me, the thing that really caught my eye, the thing that I really would say is like, this is why Nightmare is still a classic and why I love the film so much, is the fact that this is a stop motion film that at times shoots live action. Right. And what I mean by that is, like, if you go back and watch those Rankin-Bass specials, you can have nostalgia for them. I still do. I still enjoy them in a certain extent. But, but if you, you watch, cannot actually enjoy them. That's illegal. But if you watch those films, watch how stilted everything is. Yeah. From the animation itself, the camera work. Yeah. Just Very, like, locked-off shots. Yes. And, like, whenever they use, like, liquid, it's very, like, clearly yes. faked. Yes. With, like, glue or something. <laughs> to a degree, it's very clearly, like, it looks like dolls on a diorama that are being like animated yeah, frame yeah. by frame with one picture and it's like of course it's probably how it was made it was on a tv budget right right you watch nightmare which is what made like on 20 million dollars at the time and holy shit they are doing pov shots they are doing sprawling just like sweeping shots of the city of the graveyard of they you do know, a lot of shots with like moving fluid in it, uh, like liquid. Yes. Um, that you can't. I mean, you can't the do snow. that in stop motion. The snow, just yeah, the snow. You you just see the you just see the night Huge. and day quality when you watch like something like Rudolph Snow yeah. and how they work, but minus like you know versus nightmares. Yeah. Huge. Um. You know, sweeping shots. Yes. like Dynamic angles. And I don't know. I I didn't find information on this, but like I mean nowadays. I don't want to say it's easy, but like, you know, they've developed technology to have um, kind of uh, not motion tracking, but like uh, oh, yeah. pre-programmed camera movements. Yeah. I don't know if they were doing that at the time. Well, it's just mainly analog. I would right. say at the time, I would say that so, was like, they probably just built a rail hand. system yes. and just moved the camera up and down the rail multiple yeah. times to get the shot. Which is insane. Yeah. It's, but it also shows that like why the evolution of anim like stop motion ends up just being like when com computers and cameras in, and computers and cameras can do that. Yeah. How much more dynamic you can do it, and how much faster can you yeah. do it in that regard? And just to think that, like, they might have done this on, like, ex heavy fucking cameras <laughs> is insane. And it's also just wonderful to see little moments where it's, like, clearly that's not a set that is a person doing just this or that, where, like, a bowl and soup, and it's, like, that's clearly just a dude holding that. They're not making a doll hold that soup. <laughs> but it's so creative because it doesn't take you out of it. It's just... Yeah. You're just trying to find the cracks. I mean, to me, it's, like... I mean, it's... Yeah, it's so it's, fluid, too. Is it, it's, like, yeah. I didn't even notice most of them until you pointed it out. Um, it's immaculate, too. It's just, like, yeah. very smooth, in that, especially Jack. Very smooth. You kind of... I, I, I think in... I feel like James and the Giant Peach and uh, Coraline, it's more like no, well, maybe not Coraline, but at least James and the Giant Peach. Like, I could tell the whole time. I was thinking, like, oh, yeah, stop motion. But this yes. movie, like, you, it's so transportive. Yeah. It's in another world, and it's so fluid that you just kind of forget, mm -hmm. you know? I think it's the benefit it's like, of. Oh, this is just animation. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the, the inception. That's definitely credit to Burton and its inception of it being a television special with like yeah. animation. Right. This wasn't something where it was like, this should be live action. 
but maybe to cut costs we can do it you know stop motion or you know traditional animation it was really just like clearly burton was very fascinated with doing films like this i mean because like his first short film literally a lot of the characters just look like the characters in his short films and with Selick as well especially with having short films as well it's clear that like they were both in tuned in terms of this kind of style of animation and they were interested in furthering it in a way that feels natural while also not going over budget yeah because <laughs> if this was a film thankfully i don't think ever went over budget because <laughs> if it did i don't even think there would be even chance of re-releasing it if it had been that bigger of a flop right. than it already was right which is saying a lot because it didn't even make a million on its first weekend <laughs> yeah it's just one of those weird things where it's just like you know you go back you know 30, 40, even 50 years and you watch classics from those eras and there are times where you watch those classics and you might just be jaw-dropped by how absolutely simple they are. Right. And so when you go that way, you have to be like, why the fuck is this such a classic? And then you realize nine times out of ten it is because of how they take something so simple and make it dynamic, unique, you know, fascinating in its own way. And that's kind of the same with Nightmare. Well, yeah, and also... I mean, I can imagine for 1993 this just being like really up- upsetting to some people. Like oh. it's genuinely oh. kind of gross and dark and edgy. I mean, the the creature designs and the little detailed animations of secondary characters are kind of gnarly at certain points. Listen, I mean, it's an easy. It'd be an easy thing to say that Disney were cowards to not yeah. distribute this under their own brand. But when you have characters. That is like a clown that can take off his face and a guy that is never explained as to who he is, except that he has a cleaver attached into his brain and they never discuss as to why he has that. He just always has it. Yeah. There is a Frankenstein surrogate that just opens up his own brain and just scratches it and it's all (laughs) gooey and like, well, it's, it's, it's clearly like. Yes, this is probably pearl-clutching moms of the 90s being scared that their kids are going to watch scary things. Yeah, it's a demon movie. Only to find out that years later it would be put on ABC Family, now known as Freeform. <laughs> and like almost like right next to fucking Harry Potter right. and like the uh, the scariness. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is Nightmare Before Christmas. It is Jack Skellington basically has a midlife crisis. He's sad that he yeah. can't do Halloween again, so he decides to take over Christmas to be a nice guy. <laughs> when in reality, he just wanted to do more things. He fucks up. He feels bad about it, but goes, you know what? I can still fix it. He fixes it. That's the film. It's not even 80 minutes. Like right, it's, yes. it's so... You can't make a film like this and not have some studio head who be like, listen, you got to make at least the story straightforward right right and that's something i think both in this and his next film is is like it this it's very lean on plot and story and i remember last time i watched this movie which was a year or two ago um just being kind of yeah there's not really much to this and like these characters are very underdeveloped and whatever but like this you know it's it's a it's a vibes movie you you sit back and you enjoy the atmosphere and the gorgeous art happening in front of you and the mood of the music and yeah the performance it's a storybook film yeah, it's, it's a very, very much like a much, children's picture book turned into a movie. There are even some shots that have that vibe of, like, it's almost framed oh, this, in a way. Yeah, it looks like it could be hand-drawn. Yeah, like the shot with Jack Skellington throwing presents down the chimneys and people are screaming. <laughs> yeah. That just looks like that could be a storyboard. It's a Dr. Seuss 
uh, yeah. two-page splash. Which is cool, too, because it's like, you see the design stuff as well, where I never knew it, and I'm not surprised that, like, Selick and Co. and, you know, his company were trying their best to, like, anytime it was Halloween Town, very clearly, German Expressionism, yeah. to an umpteenth degree. But when they go to Christmas Town, they go there twice, I believe. It is Susian to a disgusting yeah, degree. Is. And it really shows the dichotomy of their worlds in a way that makes it go like, yeah, you either hate this or you are enveloped and entranced <laughs> by this. And of course, yeah. Jack is entranced. Because it's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Colors? Food? I've never seen food like this. Right. Normal stuff. Joy. <laughs> and also, there's one other aspect we need to talk about. That I'm, when it comes to Nightmare Before Christmas, I think there are three figures that are the the, you know, the spearheads in terms of why this film right. is still a classic today. And that is Tim Burton, Henry Selick, and of course, composer and singer everybody knows him everybody maybe loves him danny elfman <laughs> yeah which is something i think a lot of people probably don't know that danny elfman is actually the voice of jack skellington in yes this. so chris sarandon is the speaking voice yeah but danny elfman is jack's singing voice right and to be honest it's not like you can't tell that there's a difference in the voices it just it's appropriate, i know man. yeah i know when a kid as a kid when i realized the guy that made the simpsons theme yeah did the singing voice for jack skeleton like it's like shit that's kind of fascinating but then of course he's one of the leads of devo yeah he also was i mean that's he is such an eclectic career and it's clear that with this i mean he i think even said interview wise he was like oh this is one of the easiest jobs i've ever had i connected with skeleton on an emotional level that like writing all of the music for him was like easy Mm -hmm. and it's clear too because there's so many fucking skeleton singing scenes which isn't bad no i love all those scenes with jack because again jack is one of the i think which is one of the most iconic animation characters just because of just yeah. how he moves he's, how intricate he's basically a wireframe like 400 heads yeah. <laughs> like he, yeah he is basically a, a animate so spindly yeah stop animator's wet dream in terms of like what you have to animate it's yeah. just wired and it's i mean chris sarandon as his uh speaking voice is also great yeah he has wonderful moments. Uh, I mean, I love the moment when he doesn't really kill Oogie Boogie, but he does technically kill Oogie unravels Boogie. unravels him. Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> just like when he just gets serious and spooky and yeah. his little signs. Yeah. It's, again, it is, it's a film that has a really talented cast behind it, but it's not overwhelming. I don't know if anyone really knows that uh, Kevin McAllister's mom, Catherine O'Hara, also <laughs> the mom from Schitt's Creek, is Sally. Yeah, she's the speaking voice of Sally, not the singing voice. But you know, there's there's things like that where it's like this is just a, you know, this is a film that's not trying to push like a, a big cast or anything like that. They just got everybody who is good at their jobs, yeah, to come together and make a film that unfortunately took decades to make, <laughs> to yeah. make a profit to be a classic. And right, thankfully, I mean, because I feel like there's not much else we could say about Nightmare other than like. You would think that there's not anything else sequel-wise to this film, and boy, oh boy, you'd be shocked. There are technically, in two different senses, two sequels. Two sequels, yeah. One is a, I shit you not, in case you don't know that out there, a Devil May Cry clone video game called <laughs> Nightmare Before Christmas Oogie's Revenge, where you play as Jack, and you, of course you fight Oogie, and that is actually supposed to be a sequel. But the most recent sequel... That we have so far heard about the property franchise, not franchise. I just nearly threw up in my mouth. Thankfully, yeah. the IP is 
a Sally focused <laughs> uh young adult novel called All Hail the Pumpkin Queen that just came out three months ago. Yeah, August, almost, yeah. yeah. And you know what? I'm glad it's just those two <laughs> things. Cause I've actually I've heard people really like Oogie's Revenge. It's like it's like Devil May Cry for babies. Yeah. So good for that. Yeah. And then you know what? I hope all of you YA fans and also Nightmare Before Christmas <laughs> fans, I hope you really enjoy that novel. Right, right. I'm not gonna read it, but I know some people who would. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope they enjoy it if they do after hearing this. Yeah. But yeah, that's the Nightmare Before Christmas. It is a old time classic that I love. I mean, you enjoy it as well. I like mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's yeah, it's gorgeous yeah. and I'll endlessly mm-hmm. give it credit for what it did influentially. Yeah. yeah. But the next film we're getting into is a film that's a reverse flip in terms of the importance of our childhood because I barely watched this as a kid, mm-hmm. but you watched this film a lot more than I did. I did, yeah. And that is, of course, Selleck's next film, which is 1996's James and the Giant Peach. Jesus. <laughs> this, it's, a, it's a weird movie. This I is mean, a weird fucking I mean, film. Nightmare Before Christmas is weird, and while you're watching it, you can you can see how just bizarre and gross it is at times. Yeah, it's... But it's, this is just... It, it leans further into, like, children's fairy tale territory. Yes. Uh, while also having all these, you know, kind of weird real-life analogs and references that go over kids' heads and stuff. Yeah, the thing that I would say that you see differently going into Selleck's second film is that, to me, Nightmare Before Christmas is a weird film on a design level. Everything is designed weirdly, even the normal stuff. Like, even the normal people that you see i mean we both thought oh yeah <laughs> they looked like the, the uh stop puffs. motion creature from the puffs yeah. tissue commercials and that's just supposed to be the normal humans <laughs> but they have horrifying looks at times and you know but as a story it's pretty easy to understand straightforward yeah you know not going to get confused in any way that is not the case with james and the giant peach james and the giant peach it's weird shit is entirely narrative it is a film that is trying to adapt a Roald Dahl novel that has an evil rhino, a giant peach. A mechanical two, shark. A mechanical shark. Two evil ants that are, I bet, horrendous looking in the actual novel. Oh, yeah. Because in Dahl's style, it is, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> you want to know. The, and, this movie also like blends live action yes. and stop motion. Yeah, so the big thing about James and the Giant Peach is hilariously around the same time that Burton is slowly building his idea for what will ultimately become the Nightmare Before Christmas, another animator, Joe Ramped, who was a friend of Selleck's at the time, was very interested in trying to pitch to Disney and a traditionally animated James and the Giant Peach, which Disney said, absolutely not. There's no way we can do that. Uh, It just doesn't make any sense in terms of how to make it easy to digest for mainstream <laughs> audiences, and also I don't know if the animation is there yet. And ultimately, at a certain point in the 90s, after I think Dull's uh, death, the estate were selling the IPs to all of his novels, and Walt Disney picked them all up. And right. so, of course, when that happens, they start to develop a James and the Giant Peach film, and they're like, oh, I wonder who's interested. Well, at the time that Ramped was talking about a possibility in terms of how to approach it, he would constantly talk about it in the 80s with Selleck. Right. And Selleck would think of ob- like interesting ways to go after it. And so while there are writers that are going in trying to make drafts with uh, Nazi sharks, <laughs> uh, 
other things here and there. And they're just like, Disney was like, this is too dark. This is bizarre. This is gross. We don't like this. Selleck comes in and is like, hey, as a director, I think there is a way we can handle this. And I think it should be fully stop motion. And Disney goes, no, uh, <laughs> we still have nightmare uh, trauma. We don't think we could probably make that money back if you do that. Maybe we could do fully live action. And, of course, Selleck's like, I think that's going to be as expensive it's not more expensive maybe we can do a little bit of both so what you get is a live action animation hybrid that in my opinion keep in mind disclaimer i do like this movie but i also think uh both sides of this film are constantly fighting with each other in terms of interest levels design narrative because when the film starts and it's entirely live action, I even told Andy this, I completely forgot <laughs> how much of this film was live action. Yeah. Because all the stuff that sticks in my brain is the, anim- the animation. Yeah. So that's the best part. Well, in the intro, that's- the live action intro segment, I felt was a lot longer than I remembered. Yes. I remember it being like five minutes and the- then he enters the peach. But it's like a 15, 20 minute intro with the live action stuff. I love how we went into this film knowing that it's barely over 80 minutes or just under 80 minutes. And we still were shocked at like, oh, it's already animation. Yeah. Jesus. Okay. And then it just was like, oh, wow, this is where we're at. I didn't know we got to this point so fast. Because right. like right. immediately as it becomes animated, it's like, oh, there's a male shark. And then, oh, there's this. Oh, there's that. And it's like, oh, my gosh, we really, this really is 80 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I completely forgot. Yeah. This movie, uh, kind of much like its predecessor, although maybe even more so, uh, is light on plot and character development and is kind of, it kind of it kind of just feels like set piece to yeah. set piece to song to set piece. It's It's um, one of those, I mean, to me, I feel like it's to its detriment to an extent because it's yeah. like, Weird shit just happens, and it's like, instead of in Nightmare Before Christmas where it's like, oh, it's weird because it's in Halloween Town, that's why that weird thing with, like, gills or that guy can take his face off and it's spooky, because as long as it's spooky, it fits in the the logic of this world. Right. While as in James and the Giant Beach, the the film adaptation, (laughs) it completely doesn't tell you that in the original novel, the reason why the rhino is a rhino is because it's a symbolism of trauma because James lost his parents to a raging rhino that left the London Zoo. Yeah, they don't really ever cover that <laughs> in the just... movie. His parents just say they're going to New York and then disappear forever, and then he gets chased by I a rhino s- in It the seems like the film just goes, and then the rhino took them. Like, it implies that it's an ethereal being right, that yeah. takes them, only to find out... No, it's it's a sign of his trauma. Yeah. And it's like, well, shit, that would have been cool if I we mean, had known that. That much that it's like a sign of his like either sadness or loneliness it or whatever. It does show up. It's apparent. Yes, But it's I agree. never, never, not even, un, it's not even unclear. It's just totally mm-hmm. left out what happened to his parents. Yes, they're just, they're gone. That's all we yeah. know. He's they say, orphan. we're going to New York, and then that's it. Yeah, and then it's like, and then the rhino mysteriously took them. Yeah. And then you see... Truly the scariest part of this fucking film, which is I what we believe is a mechanical rhino that is <laughs> entirely encased in shadow except for these horrifying yellow eyes with no pupils. And it's, it's always... It's like enveloped in a big cloud. And it looks bigger than anything else in this film. And so yeah. it's horrifying. It's great. It's, the, I it's mean, a really well shot. Like when it yeah. shows up, it's, all, it's very ominous. Yeah. But, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is a... It's fine. 
I like it, but yeah. that's about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't I mean, really but, have much else to say about Jason the Shy. I, I mean, I probably couldn't count the number of times I've seen this film, but I hadn't mm-hmm. seen it since I was a child. Like, I watched it on loop as a kid. Yeah, moved on. Basically forgot about it, just let it live in my mind as this really fond memory, and didn't yeah. revisit it until now. And yeah, it's uh, it's still got a lot of the like animation charm of. I mean, Henry Selleck's work that, is still the, great. Yeah, his team um, fucking kills it with the animation. Yeah, it's, it's still a really creative, detailed, mm. gorgeous, frame to frame, fascinating movie. Yeah, but it's just the the where where Nightmare Before Christmas is light on story. This one is almost kind of nonsensical on story, mm-hmm. like to the point yes. of being grating a little bit. And the I, characters kind of endlessly say these weird one-liners. And there's a centipede that makes passes on a spider. And he's from Brooklyn. He's and, from Brooklyn, Andy. That's the excuse. Yeah, and there's a he's British, walking here. you know, a proper British grasshopper. and A, uh, a worm that has no eyes, yeah. but wears sunglasses where his eyes would might be. Yeah. Play, um, played by Professor Lupin. <laughs> Yeah. David Thewlis, who is... <laughs> and I think in my head as a kid, I kind of fused this movie with A Bug's Life, which has a similar kind of cute, fun ensemble of bug characters. I can kind of see that. Um, Vastly I... different types of bug ensembles, but I, I sure, definitely sure. see. There's but still like, bug ensembles There's still like a kooky ragtag bunch. Yes. Um, which... So I, rem- I guess I remembered <laughs> there being more character development of these guys, and there's really not. They all just kind of show up, and they have their shtick, and they do their shtick the whole movie, it's... and James you know, goes to New York and wins. It's also funny that it's like, I don't remember, and I guess there could be people out there that could be like, um, actually me about James and the Giant Peach. And you know what? I would take it. I don't care as much in that regard. But like, I also love that when you finally get to the animation segments and we see everybody, I go like, no, I know why the spider's here. I know why the cricket's here. I know why the glowworm's here. Why the fuck are you guys here? Because I don't remember (laughs) seeing a worm or a centipede or a ladybug. Why are you all here? What's Centip- going on? Centipede's iconic. Well, no, I mean, again, I'm not saying Richard the characters. Richard Dreyfus. The, the characters are fun. It's just like the spider is there because James knows the spider. Yeah, James there was a spider the in spider. his room. And he puts it outside of them when out. gets the glowworms. I guess the glowworms implant themselves into the creatures, which is why they become oh, yeah. huge and sentient well, and speak aren't English. They, they, they're, they're crocodile tongues. Yes, or something. I think as so. Pete Postlethwaite. Ah, uh, rest in peace, King. He's he's yeah. such a good actor. I mean, he's he's fun. He's extremely creepy. He's one. Yeah, he's one degree away from being he, a, a child molester. Yeah, it's it's very. I mean, he's wearing like a Sergeant Pepper coat, <laughs> yeah, and he's talking like to Captain a child. <laughs> and every time James is trying to look at something, he's just trying to make eye contact. Yeah, direct, like direct eye contact. Just like guides is. Face yeah, back. well, he's being a nice guy. It's yeah. just you know, it's a roll. It's like it's a roll doll novel. He's so giving it's him not crocodile thinking. tongues. I was gonna say, in a, in a the guy that made the witches, it's not surprising that this is considered a normal dude that just happens to have cool glowworms that turn mm-hmm. peaches real fat. But yeah. yeah, it's it's just like once the animation kicks in, that's when my brain goes, oh, I'm interested. I'm having a good time. I love the designs of everybody. However, there is yeah. one aspect. Of this film that I think both live action and animation, I don't think there's any way you can really fix this. And this might be a controversial take. I don't know. I don't really like the music in this film. <laughs> I like the it's, score. Yeah. I like Newman's score. But the score. songs. Yes. He is, he is literally so direct with his lyrics that there is a whole song about, it's supposed to be about eating peach, but instead it's an entire song about 
everyone's favorite food to eat. Right. And it's just like, it comes out of nowhere. It has, again, it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like if I was watching this by myself, I'd say, I feel like Andy would hate this because he cousin doesn't really like the whole jumping into song for no reason. <laughs> and that's James and the Giant Peach yeah, in a nutshell. Yeah. It's just like, oh, hey, I feel a song I think coming I kind of just tuned that stuff out as a kid. Well, understandable. But, like, again, with Newman, it's, again, though, when the score of Newman hits, you hear Toy Story. But, yeah. again, but it's like, oh, God, I love – this is so much fun. This is so much adventure. They're fighting pirates. Right. And they're fighting a shark. But then when they start singing about being a new family – and eating peach and james literally singing a song called my name is james <laughs> it's just like it is such it just feels like a, a downgrade compared to what elfman put into nightmare yeah I'm not saying newman didn't put his best work or anything in it i just don't think it's for me yeah. in that regard and again it's hard not to listen to some of the songs and andy can attest i was singing you got a friend in me while yeah. some of these songs are going on and <laughs> oh my god it's it's again it's a fine film it's I enjoy it, and I also think that to me, what excels the best during the live action sequences are the set design, and Selick's directing. I think directing Selick shows a really good kind of eye for directing, especially for very expressionistic, very abstract locations, because pretty much everything in the live action is fake. Yeah. It's clearly very story like, like again, like somewhere a nightmare children's bookie, but in live action, it's basically like just this theatrical production kind of vibe like their whole house on a hill feels very soundstagey because it is right the whole new york new york is hilariously just like theater production in the best way yeah just like how all the buildings are kind of lined up all the way to the middle of empire where the fucking <laughs> peach is on it and it's just it's very fun to watch design wise and it's you know got a good score and Selick is a great director all around yeah. it's just i don't think the material is really done <laughs> well enough right. that i feel like it's worth you know a classic status i understand why it is a classic to a lot of people it is a fun film with fun characters and like andy said you have richard dreyfus as a brooklyn centipede and yep. susan sarandon as a french uh, yeah i think spider. she's french and is weirdly attractive oh, is yeah. that is, I, mean, I that might just be because susan sarandon's putting in a lot of effort <laughs> Well, well, the centipede's certainly into it. <laughs> the centipede, that's also a funny Keeps thing. grabbing for the, the The insects themselves are all very well casted and are, do a really good job, but also they're doing vastly different yeah. characters in a way that's really fun. Like the grasshopper, like Andy <laughs> said, is very posh and uptight. Yeah. And like, my word. And right. it's you have centipede where it's just, A, I'm walking here, but in a centipede's body, <laughs> he looks like a fucking newsie. <laughs> yeah. You got David. I mean, my favorite design probably is the worm, only because I love the fact that like he's wearing sunglasses, and yet every time he speaks, the sunglasses go up, and there's no eyes. <laughs> he wear he's wearing sunglasses just because just he doesn't have them. He doesn't yeah. want to scare James. I just want to scare the audience that he has no eyes. <laughs> Uh, but you know the glowworms well designed is played by Miriam. Is it McGoyles? Uh, Mar Margulies. I yeah. don't know how it's pronounced. She's Professor Sprout from Harry Potter. We yeah. have another. Yeah. We have another tie to Harry Potter. We actually in this trilogy we have three Harry Potter alums. I didn't tell Andy what the third one was. We'll get to that later. Uh, <laughs> surprise. Don't worry. When I say it, he'll go. Oh, it's not a big <laughs> deal. But yeah well james i just it's clear that you see with selick selick is absolutely doing his best especially after probably nightmare he's putting his whole effort into his directorial debut and he doesn't even make a million dollars in the first weekend so he's clearly trying to find a way to make 
it's money while also kind of still keeping creativity and the passion still enveloped despite the fact that he has to make the shortcuts of not doing full stop motion having to right. do the hybrid even though that's probably going to be disorienting which it kind of is at times mm-hmm. like ultimately i think this is a fun fine film that is not surprising that when the box office actually came to towards the end it is 38 million off of a 37 budget <laughs> or yeah. flipped when in reality it's like i think thankfully Selleck being as good of a creator as he is especially with his crew and whatnot and just the dedication they all have. It's clear that neither one of these films is Selleck's. It's not Selleck's fault. It's not anybody on the oh, film's yeah. fault. Truly, it's unfortunate because it feels like both films. Nightmare, I think, just comes out. It has to be the first of this, and that either means it becomes one of the biggest classics of all time immediately or it flops and it takes yeah. time to kind of build that cult status to actual classic kind of status. Or... You have a James and the Giant Pete situation where you take a novel that's very weird, very silly, very abstract at times, and you ultimately make a film that is maybe might rub some people the wrong way or does yeah. enough but not enough to get people like excited. Jazzed. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole sequence in this film that's animated like a story book. Yeah. Like pictures cut out, like this is going to be a very oh, it's deep a dream sequence. There's a very deep '90s 2000s cut. Uh, Angela Anaconda is a thing. <laughs> it is a. It was an animation show that was on Fox that was just like cut out pieces of paper mm-hmm. that were animated, and it's very, very rough. <laughs> yeah. But it had that vibe to it where it's like, so it's not only a film that is doing hybrid stop motion and hybrid uh, with live action. It's also doing another animation <laughs> type, type yeah. on top of that. And it's doing so much, and it's doing its best to stay in budget, and it does, but I think it's just just too weird. Yeah, I think it also, attention. going back to the live action at the end, ends up being kind of a wet fart of an I, ending. I agree. I he agree. gets to New York, and the ants mm-hmm. the big somehow city. get there and attack him. Which, apparently, it's... the film takes place in 1949, <laughs> which I, because like I, I looked at the newspaper at the very end, because they're... The very end has newspaper clippings of like yeah. all the insects and James doing their own Where thing. Where are they now? Kinda. And they, it's literally says 1949. Interesting. So that's, uh, you don't really get that. Vi- you get that it's old timey, but you do not get it's the vibe very, that it's a yeah. specific time like that. Yeah. But yeah, James and the Giant Peach comes out. I think it does decently well critically. Because that's the thing too, is both Nightmare and James, I think, do well critically. Yeah. Yeah. Both it's of just them. commercially. I mean, James and Giant Peach is, has like a. I mean, I think it has like a ninety percent Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes didn't exist at the time, but you no, know these. But are, now aggregating right. all those, and also I think Nightmares the same way. Like I think, yeah, just the fact that it was another stop motion, but it was not like we're doing Nightmare again. It's like this is a vastly different type of thing you can do with stop motion. Yeah, and again, you get some fun stuff where it's like a Nightmare and James. You have moments of like. It's clearly physically animated, and they're real dolls and real sets being turned into animation, but they're using traditional animation logic, like cartoon logic with, right. like, bags, with, like, you know, their movements. Yeah. yeah. Very rubber hosey at times. Yeah. There's some, I mean, especially with, like, Centipede's a lot of a fun character because he constantly goes from, like, running like a normal person and then just, like, doing backflips and stuff with <laughs> yeah. his body. Contorting himself. Yeah. The, the I mean, I think the best animation stuff for me personally is when they get the compass. That's where a lot of that that yeah. animation shines. Where Jack Skellington makes a cameo because they <laughs> yeah. use his doll. They for use the, the yeah Pirate the King doll from that for the the like 
mm-hmm. shipwreck yeah. pirate king. I should have worn a belt. <laughs> yeah. Classic Richard Dreyfus. Classic Richard. Um, um but yeah, I mean, but yeah, yeah, I think I think this made pretty much exactly its budget back, which means like with mm-hmm. marketing and stuff it probably lost money, but yeah. not as much of a flop as uh Nightmare Before Christmas. No, absolutely not. But at the same time, it's just like because of that, when it comes to a animated Selick film, there is about let's see 13 film 13 years in between yeah. he does something else in between that we're not gonna talk about that we're gonna put it aside. <laughs> but what we're gonna talk about next is the last film in the trilogy but to talk about that we have to bring up a new context which is a new animation company that comes out at that time that has slowly been building since the late 90s that ultimately gets its feature debut with Selick as the director and that is yeah. Coraline now Coraline is the directorial debut for both Selick as well as the first film to release for Leica Studios, mm-hmm. which takes place in, I believe, I think it's companies in Hillsborough, Oregon. Okay, yeah. The big thing about Leica Studios that I think many people should know, and it's probably they don't, and I think it's wild. So the the chairman <laughs> of Leica <laughs> is, uh, I think it's Phil Knight. Yes, it's Phil yeah. Knight, who is, I don't know if you know this, but if you're a sports person, you might know. He's the co-founder of Nike. So basically in the 90s, there was a animation studio called, I'm looking through my notes, hold on, uh, Will Vinton Studios, who basically wanted funding to basically make more feature film yeah. stuff and make more kind of like mainstream appeal kind of animation. And of course, Phil Knight was interested because his son, Travis Knight, was animating at the mm-hmm. studio at the time. So of course, Phil bought shareholding stocks to it ultimately becomes the chairman of the company and then yeah. Travis ends up becoming a co-chair later. And then ultimately they changed the name in the mid two thousands to Leica based off of the dog that was sent to space by the Soviet Union in nineteen fifty seven. That's why it's called Leica, in case you didn't know. <laughs> so now we caught up. So Leica Studios has been on the scene but for smaller projects. They're slowly building their kind of forte. Yeah. They actually did in two thousand five, hilariously enough I don't know if Silic was involved. He might have been, but he they did contract work for Tim Burton's Corpse Bride in 2005. Uh, okay. So they did some cor- they did some uh, contract work here and there for the next couple of years. But as they were doing that, they were building two animation films. One of those films gets uh, delayed and basically gets put out of commission once they were low low on funds. But the other one was Coraline. Yeah. And one of the reasons why Coraline I think kept going forward is because at the very beginning of Leica becoming Leica. They bring on a supervising director for Coraline and for the studio itself, and that is Henry Selick. Yep. So here we are in 2009. <laughs> Leica's directorial debut is also Selick's third film, and this will be interesting. I I don't I think I still like Nightmare a bit more because I think I just kind of always and again yeah. it's also a bit biased, but part it's also it's a part of me. But also I just really enjoy the simplicity of Nightmare sure. and just like you can sure. jump in and out. However. Coraline is fucking phenomenal. It is a phenomenal film that deserved all the praise it got at its time. It is a film that has held up incredibly well, and I even think the film is probably much more interesting now, I think, on further rewatches, especially now that I believe if you're if you're big on the Sandman, if you're big on American Gods yeah. and other game and properties, I completely didn't know, and maybe most of you who are game and fans might not know, but Coraline was written novel wise by Neil Gaiman. Yeah. And it's very clear. <laughs> and it's very fascinating, too, because it's like when Andy and I were going through all these films, 
you know, when we get through Nightmare, when we get through James, regardless of our flaws or kind of like our own kind of criticisms of those films or what we love about those films, we could not be like, okay, at least they're like 80 minutes. Yeah. Because even if we didn't like a scene, it was gone before it was done. <laughs> Very like quick. It was gone before we could even think about it. Coraline's 100 minutes, and I don't mean this in a mean way at all, but it feels like 120 yeah. Because of all of what it condenses and put, puts into that time compared to those other two films. Yeah. Well, There's... we may have also kind of been not doing ourselves a favor by watching all three of these together. So we got uh, very used to the, maybe. the flow yes, of we... the, the under 80-minute run. Yeah. But, I, but at the same time, I think it, it also, again, that's why I didn't mean it as a bad thing. It just was right. like kind of shocking how much you can condense into a 100-minute film. Yeah. Because even when it's like, oh, fuck, I remember, I forgot about this. I forgot about this. Oh, my gosh, I didn't even think about this little tidbit here and there. It just shows kind of how astounding it is that while all this is also being put into the film and executed really well, on top of that, you have some of the best animation (laughs) of that era. I think both stop motion and I think in animation in general, just the amount of detail, design-wise, camera-wise, Everything about Coraline is just really fucking phenomenal. Yeah. And I just can't – it's hard not to watch this film and be like, damn, I really wish Laika was just, like, bigger. Yeah. Like, right. it, it's really a bummer to watch Coraline now in that kind of regard because it's like when Coraline first came out, at least I remember, like, being like, holy shit. Are they yeah. going to be doing more films like this? This is awesome. This is great. Right. Cannot wait to see what more they do. And they do others. I mean, again, there's Paranorman, which I love, comes <laughs> out after this. Yeah. They do – uh, Kubo and the Two Strings. Yeah. They do the Box Trolls. They do Missing Link. And as I'm reading off these films, if you think in your brain, I don't remember any of these. <laughs> yeah. It they were not really not really hits. Big hits. If they were hits, they weren't Kubo hits. Kubo like, was maybe the most of those. No. Not not financially, but just yeah. culturally. I feel like probably. Yeah. Well, because like. The they pushed it hard because the amount of work they put into Kubo was insane. Yeah, they put a lot of great work, phenomenal work into all these films. But like, just go back and watch beat like behind the scenes work on Kubo, and your jaw will drop. It's insane. There's yeah. a whole they did a whole video of uh, there's a fight scene with the monkey in Kubo, and <laughs> yeah. they showed the whole process of just like showing the monkey do an arc of a jump and like, uh <laughs> yeah. It yeah. just stresses you out, but also fascinates you. <laughs> and that's the same thing with Coraline. Like, you just watch it and you go, like, oh, my God, how? Right. How did you do that? Oh, my gosh. And it's also the fact that, like, this film was shot in 3D as well. Yeah. A stop-motion film <laughs> where it took ni- it took a whole week to do, at most, 100 seconds of film for a 100-minute film. Yeah. They also did two cameras on set at the same time next to the regular camera to give it that stereoscopic, you know, classic oh, 3D yeah, look. Yeah. And that's fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I mean, it's incredible, though, that just the amount of work that goes into that and the fact that, like, just you can watch it again. And one of the best things about Selleck as a director, and it's one of the things that's so sad that Selleck only has five films under his belt, yeah. is that you just see the commitment as a director you know, this kind of the, the direction that you need to know, like, where everything's going to go. The crew that he works with is phenomenal. Like, it is just all the way, all the top, just top to bottom. It's hard not to watch this trilogy and just be like, God damn it. Yeah. I wish 
like oh, I wish Ardman were bigger. <laughs> that's the thing too is like one of the fascinating things is I think Coraline by the end of its run is the highest grossing mm-hmm. animated film, and the two films under that are Wallace and Gromit: Curse of the Were Rabbit, <laughs> which is fucking Kino, and anyone that says otherwise are fools. Kino and Chicken Run, which I'm so excited for the sequel that is actually oh, in yeah. development. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, Chicken Run Two is gonna. I can't wait to see a bunch of 30-year-olds <laughs> in a theater just screaming when they see just, like, classic characters right. from that fucking film. <laughs> but, I mean, it's it's so fascinating to see in the span of 16 years, going from 93 to 2009, you go from a film that is just, like, starting it out, just going gun, guns blazing, we're going to see what happens here, to already makes nightmare look simplistic in a lot of its camera design and it's just art direction i mean a lot of that too is like again the art direction in all three of these films i think is phenomenal Mm -hmm. i think it's some of the i mean in james's case i think it's probably one of the strongest aspects in nightmare it's just one of many strong aspects and then the core line it stands above the rest and i think it also works a lot because it's like it's not Burton style because again, no. Selick, yeah. Selick is still fighting the Burton shadow <laughs> that follows him everywhere. And to have a film like Coraline where it's clearly Selick as the director, but not Burton as the designer, especially for the main characters, yeah. is really helpful. And I'm going to look up, I got to remember the name of the man because I do want to give him credit for being the designer. But please, Andy, continue to talk. Designer of what? Coraline. Oh, just the character designer and yes. stuff? Yes. Yeah. His name will pop up. Um, I know it. Is it Tadahiro Usugi? I don't have to look it up anymore. <laughs> he did it. He did it. But yes, Tadahiro Usugi, he is... It's so good. And like, yeah. He literally, in his interviews, he says, I was only supposed to be there for a few days, and then I think it took two years of my life, and I don't regret it. And it's like... Yeah. Yeah. You can see it in every kind of design, too. Especially if you look up his artwork compared to the animation style. It's like, yeah. It's it's intricate in its own way, and it also, even though I don't know if Gaiman really had much of a pull in how the film was made, it feels like Gaiman. <laughs> like feels yeah. like something like he would be it, proud yeah, of. Yeah, it's well, and it's uh, this is dark in a different way yeah. than the Burton, you know, Burton related film or uh, Doll, like especially yeah, or with James. Doll. Yeah, like it's both. very much its own kind of language, um, and I think. This one, I would say, is, like, the scariest. I mean, I agree. this is definitely still, like, a film, you know, you can show your kids, watch as a family, but, like, it, it, this is going to scare some kids. Like, there, there's some spooky stuff and some really haunting kind of character transformations and yes. l- lighting. Oh, my gosh. The there's... lighting and the way characters shift and move and are framed in different scenes is gorgeous but also unsettling yeah um, there's one scene in particular that is at the towards the end of the film where basically the floor just gives out uh, and it's a scene that i remember the first time seeing it i went what the fuck is happening i cannot <laughs> believe they did that if i was a little bit younger that would have scarred me and watching it as an adult i still went oh fuck i forgot <laughs> that it, yeah. it goes to this and just the amount of intricate details about that scene and what that leads to in terms of the action conflict, the yeah. pacing. Oh my God. Such a good film. Coraline so is phenomenal. Yeah, it really is. And it's, and it's like you said earlier, it doesn't in, in the way that you could say that the previous two fall short or at least dry on story. Yeah. This one kind of 
shoves that precedent aside and tells a really great kind of emotionally rich story about childhood and and kind of growing up and in less than ideal circumstances and learning to to adapt and that sort of thing and it's the journey that Coraline herself goes through is really satisfying oh yeah you get to you get to know her as a character I think better than any of the characters in the previous two films like she feels Mm -hmm. the most like a person like like if anything that's fascinating about Selleck as a character as a director in general is just like I'd be curious to see him do a film that doesn't have a lyrical or uh uh, musical? Uh, not a, well, not a, well, not musical, and more just like a literary kind of adaptation to it. Oh, or feels like, like it, it deserves original. Well, like more in terms of like if it didn't feel like a storybook or a book uh, itself, because okay. you have Nightmare that feels like a book, but it isn't. Yeah, feels like it was designed from the ground up as if it was going to be a children's book. James is based off of a book by Roald Dahl. Yeah, and Coraline is based off of a book by Neil Gaiman, and it's like it just seems like he is he is the master of just taking <laughs> just very literal little literary kind of designs of like you know the chapters and the characters themselves and all those details and actually putting it together in a way that's not yeah. two and a half hours long. Right. It doesn't feel like you're wasting time. Yeah, and it feels and it doesn't lose any character or pacing or just kind of creativity in the visuals or the acting. Yeah, that's another thing too. Is I think all three of these films, excluding probably James and James with Giant Peach, he seems like a nice guy. I don't, <laughs> he's not the best actor, but he does his best. Uh, he's certainly more appealing than his stop motion counterpart. Oh my god, he's fucking horrifying. <laughs> Logan could not stop remarking he how terrifyingly horrifying. British the uh, stop motion. It, I didn't say was. terrifyingly British. <laughs> you did say he looks so British. He looks. He, he looks, looks somehow he looks more, more British car- than his yeah, live action. Stereotypically, like a caricature of a British it's person. The beady eyes, isn't it? No, Logan? it's just it's. You hate his beady eyes. It's his. Huge face, his huge head. Yeah, he. It's. I mean, it's one of the funniest things about James the Giant Peach. We'll get back to Coraline in just a second, but I have to say, watching James when he gets into the Peach and he transitions to animation, watching a normal boy get a huge fucking head is hilarious, and also his body just becomes more puppety because, of course, he's a he's a puppet. Yeah, but it's it's funny to see like his body just get thinner. And smaller, and his head just gets huge. Yeah, and it's thankfully that's not the case with Coraline in terms of the character designs, because while the character designs are very unique and very inhuman in places, both the human <laughs> characters and the monsters of the film, ultimately it doesn't take away from their characteristics, their performances. Uh, and when speaking of performances, the third Harry Potter alum is Don French, who is one of the old biddies that lives in the basement. That is totally not a lesbian. They're not lesbians that live together. They are just two hetero friends that are just, you know, been living together for decades. Just just mates, just buds hanging out. You know, girls being girls. Right. You know, one of the one of the the old biddies, the one that actually you nearly see her naked. Oh yeah. That is played by Don French, who is mainly known, I think, in the Harry Potter fan base, is the uh, I think the fat lady in the painting. She is she's one of the pa- like the living paintings. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's the yeah, I bet you've been waiting this whole time, viewers. Just sweating with anticipation. Yeah, listeners, viewers, what the fuck are you viewing? Um but yeah, we <laughs> should talk about the the near nudity that this movie gets away with. That I, that, that I can't remember the characters. I tell name. you what, I wish my dad was the co-chairman of Nike sometimes <laughs> because if I just watching that and being like we're nearly about to see a nipple on a puppet yeah. and it feels like 
they just don't care. And, the, I mean, and you know what? Good the, for them. The amount of care and detail put into those jiggle physics is off the charts for a children's I tell film. you, to, to have a woman that has two breasts that are the size of James's head and James the yeah, Giant Peach is truly the size of the peach. wild. It really is. <laughs> they really are. And it's like, Enormous. this is a children's film. Yeah. We went from pearl clutching because of how spooky it could be to pearl clutching because there's maybe Nudity. a naked woman in this. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's a great cast all around. I mean, Terry Hatcher, I mean, oh my gosh. She has double duty in this film and she kills it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dakota Fanning, of course, this is Dakota Fanning mania right in the middle of that. She's in practically everything for a good 10 to 15 years. (laughs) John Hodgman playing the most Sigma male ever put in animation (laughs) as Coraline's dad. Ian McShane. Uh, as a beautiful upstairs neighbor Bobinski. that everyone thinks he's drunk, but he's Eastern European. Right. That's just his personality. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer Saunders and Don French play the, t- the Tickle Bitties guy. <laughs> Good lord. They, they play the two old bitties that live downstairs, and most people know Jennifer Saunders as the voice of the fairy godmother yeah. from Shrek 2. Yeah. But, of course, the best casting, <laughs> the only casting that matters is Keith David as the black cat. <laughs> Truly my dream cat is someone who has to constantly worry about his life because cats could kill him at any moment just by being in his vicinity. I would absolutely want a cat that just has Keith David's voice if I could speak to that cat. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just... You'd it's, be wrong not to. Really. It's either that or sounds like the cat... Uh, sounds like Salem from the 90s, Sabrina the Teenage Witch <laughs> yeah. series. They're both black cats, but either one, I think, is sure, the, sure. the ideal cat in my scenario. But, yeah, I mean, it's Coraline. Like, it's it's so weird in this regard because yeah. it's like we're not talking about, you know, something with, like, you know, last the Halloween trilogy where it's like, ah, kind of slumps here and whatnot. Yeah, James, to me, is a bit of a slump, but even then, it's still interesting. It's very odd. Yeah, and I mean, across perfect. all of these, you don't really see a slump in the the. Animation. Creative, no. the creative design and the animation. Yeah, I mean he's Selick and his crew are just really pushing the limits of what they can do with stop motion and oh. and I mean you see oh. that carry forward in uh, stop motion projects since then at Leica and that sort yeah. of thing. Oh, good lord! I mean, I I can't imagine. It'd be wild to think of what a Leica like directorial film for Leica would be, like their debut not being a Selick film. Oh, like, it man. almost feels like Selleck being the supervising director, becoming the main director for Coraline, is almost like passing the torch onto yeah. Travis Knight and to right. the Leica team to be like, okay, I give you my blessing. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to peace out and try to do other stuff. Yeah, and in the Which, process made Leica's best film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, as someone who loves Paranorman, I think Kubo is phenomenal in places, but yeah. also hasn't seen Box Trolls or Missing Link. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm excited for the next film. While we were talking about looking up stuff for Coraline, we... I found out that they have a new film that literally they just announced a few months ago for next year, which sounds like a fantasy adventure film that takes place in Oregon, which is, oh, baby, that could be a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. It's got Jacob Tremblay, Carrie Mulligan, but of course, everyone's favorite on this podcast, Aquafina. (laughs) And it's, I I say that as someone who does like Aquafina as an actress, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'm so glad that every time I see a Leica announcement, it's not, like us closing its doors after so right, years. Yeah. It's more like, oh, fuck, they're still doing it. Which, again, I think is the benefit of having your father be the co-chairman of Nike. Yeah. And also Travis Knight just being a good director because 
Travis Knight basically picks up the torches for most of like his films, I believe. I think Paranorman is a double duty, not with Travis, but Travis does Kubo. Travis, yeah. I believe he might have done Missing Link. I just know that there was a bit of a a bit of a stint because Travis actually did a live action film later on, which was called Bumblebee. Yeah, and it's also a little the, indie film. It's a little indie film. It's also the best Transformers film we've gotten in the last like twenty years. Yeah. Maybe maybe the maybe the TV movies if there are any maybe they're good but like <laughs> I'm talking about like big budget it's probably the best one yeah I'm excited for Dino Wars though or Beast Wars oh uh, yeah Beast Wars they're doing a Beast Wars film basically man <laughs> with Ron Perlman I think yep. it's one of the dinos yep. and Anthony Ramos and hopefully Keith David uh, and Danielle or Dominique Fishback I think as oh, well okay. oh Keith David Get has Keith he, David. Has he ever been a Transformer? I don't think so. He better be. I don't think so, but he should be. I think they just. I finally... feel like if you're if you're making a Transformers movie, it's your responsibility to get like as many cool voices in there as possible. I, I can't. I can't believe that there hasn't been every time they make a Transformers film, even with Bay was there, where they're just like, "Hey, can we just make this like full animated at Cybertron?" Yeah. And they go, "No, shut up, don't do that." And it's like, okay, because I think it's now they just announced like, "Oh, we're maybe we'll do that." And it's like, yeah, maybe. Go fuck yourself. You're not going to play with me like that. Don't do that. <laughs> the The beginning of Bumblebee is awesome, and it's only like five minutes. Yeah. Oh. It's like, stop that. Um, Keith David was in Transformers 2007, the game. Of course he plays he Barricade in the video game. That's just rude to Keith David. It is rude, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that the, ori- the original the – Not film... that he's above video games or the video games no, are lesser. No, absolutely not. But... Keith David's great in Mass Effect. Right. But the like, little I've played in that game. You but know, if you're going to put a series. man in a video game, better put him in the movie. You better put Keith David in... – I mean, put Keith David as more cats, I think. As more cats? Just cats in general. Yeah, just, just... remake cats with Keith David as every character. <sighs> don't, don't give people ideas, but I'd watch it. Yeah. I mean, the, the man the man played upside a reverse giraffe in Rick and Morty, and he's phenomenal. He yeah. also plays not Brock in not Rick and Brock, Morty. Yeah. He does a wonderful job in that. But, yeah, enough about Keith David. This is a great trilogy. Never I'm, enough about Keith David. I mean, we could do a whole podcast, but there we could really do a whole podcast about <laughs> Keith David. Wouldn't be a trilogy. No, but... no, no. It would literally just be we watch a whole film, but we only talk about his performance. <laughs> We get to like the, the Requiem. filmography of Keith David. Yeah, we get to the Requiem for a Dream episode. And it's only twenty minutes because he's in the <laughs> film for like five. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, The Rise of Selick is just a. It's one of those trilogies where you kind of wished there was more of Selick to kind of take in and digest because yeah, because I mean he deserves twice as many films. As right, he has the in his three films we talked about are kind of the bulk of his work. He's done yeah. other stuff, of course, and we don't want to take away from no. that. But, like, these are his kind of yeah. biggest imprints, um, and it's just weird to, to talk about a filmmaker who's been around so long and has had such yeah. influence, and these kind of are the three films. Like, I'm just glad that Wendell and Wilde are just getting good reviews. It doesn't sure. have to be great, but, like, the fact that people go, like, you know, the story is muddled, but, like, the animation's phenomenal. I just go, oh, my God. <laughs> Selig didn't Selig didn't waste like <laughs> several years of his life to just do a film that no one wanted to see. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm just glad he's still making stuff. And oh man. And I'm also glad that like I, that movie probably doesn't happen without Jordan Peele. And probably I'm glad, not. I'm glad Peele's enough of a fucking nerd to respect Selick in what yeah. he's done and I think there's a lot of like a that. lot of things, a lot of beautiful things like Henry Selick's work that don't happen these days without a name like Jordan Peele yeah. helping him out, which I is mean, an unfortunate reality, but it's but it shows too you don't do you can't do something like 
both James and Nightmare, I believe, without Tim Burton in some yeah, way. Tim yeah. Burton less than James, but Tim Burton was still a producer, I believe, on mm-hmm. James and the Giant Peach. You don't do Coraline without Nike money, without yeah. Phil Knight, and even Travis Knight being a part of the film as well. Nike and I money. and I don't think you yeah, you get Wendell Wild without Netflix. Yeah. And Jordan Peele. Like it's it sucks because it's like Coraline makes the most money for a, like an animated film in stop motion, which is like 125. But even then, compare that to how much money a Pixar film makes, especially yeah. like even the weaker Pixar films, it's like half a billion sometimes. Yeah. I mean, Coraline is better than all three Cars films, Brave, uh, Toy Story 4. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of like, you know, all these other Pixar films that have a made. A good chunk of Pixar yeah, films. That have yeah. made uh, definitely The Good Dinosaur, but like made three, four, five, six times more than Coraline right, made in its right. whole run. And that's just, that's the way of the business. That also is, unfortunately, we talked about this with the DreamWorks trilogy that like, this is just what happens when unfortunately, like, People are just not willing to give a different type of. Uh, I think it's yeah. We we have an audience that's conditioned to 3D animation now. Yeah. To to the point that not only stop motion isn't super mm-hmm. lucrative, but also 2D animation is no longer really viable, yeah. or at least is not seen as viable by big studios. No, which is which is why I'm thankful that something like Into the Spider Verse leads to animators and like yeah. studios pushing more for 2D 3D hybrid. Yeah, or just yeah, just trying different art styles mm-hmm. um but I'm, I'm hoping wild woods is uh like his n- next film it's gonna yeah. be just bring that kind of back into play and i really hope you know Selick does more after this because yeah he's fucking great at what he does yeah. and it's also it's good just to go back and just not hate our lives going back to back to back <laughs> on like someone's filmography and not being like this is way too dated like that's not no yeah the case literally andy can attest i was singing nightmare under my breath because I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of him, but he could hear me singing. <laughs> it's amazing how much that movie does not feel dated. I mean, it's just yeah. so, like I said earlier, transportive. You just feel like you're in another world. Mm-hmm. James and the Giant Peach, the live action segments kind of fail it a little bit or betray its age. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they kind of feel like they're trying to do Matilda to an extent. Yeah, not design-wise, like performance-wise. It's like surreal Matilda. Yeah, but Matilda's better. Yeah. Um, but my, I mean, my favorite detail from this whole trilogy of Selleck's work is that um, Coraline's dad uh, wears Nike shocks the entire film. So, well, product placement. It was there. fun to really just like go through my mind palace millisecond by millisecond to try to guess what the fuck you were gonna say, and thank fuck that it, it wasn't was that. true. And not- <laughs> <laughs> that I made it up. Oh my god, I was thinking while we were watching these films, like another thing that's also fascinating, especially with films that have limited budgets and have to do work with what they get, especially studio-wise. It's just fun to watch James and the Giant Peach and make jokes about, like, you know, when the centipede shows up, we go like, hey, I just got some dominoes, when, like, they would never do that because it's stupid. Yeah. But there are some films that have to do that because they got the money from dominoes or something like yeah. that. And all three of these films are just become more timeless, even if they become dated, just for the fact that they don't have brands. Yeah. Like, thank God, yeah, Coraline's dad doesn't wear soap shoes or, like, like any kind of weird shit that was late 2000s. Like, soap was early 2000s, but just, like, shit that would date it immediately Yeah, if that happened. And, yeah, that's the rise of Selick. Got to, good to come off at Halloween to just do go from 
spooky, scary, quote unquote, defunct scary. <laughs> but you know, now that we've done that, it might be time to do a little bit of both for what we're doing next. Because if you have kind of paid attention this episode, we said that Henry Selleck has five films in his filmography. Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach, Coraline, Wendell and Wild. The fifth film actually happens between James <laughs> and the Giant Peach and Coraline. Yeah. It is, I would say, by far, out of all of Selleck's films, it is his weirdest, <laughs> it is his riskiest film he's done, and is also probably the biggest flop. <laughs> to the point where today, out of curiosity, I was like, I wonder if I could get a Blu-ray of said film, and it's out of print. So, yeah. we decided, we thought it was fun to kind of switch it up a bit, you know, to add more. Since we didn't do as many episodes last m- month as we could have done, we thought in between our standard trilogy episodes, it's time to break out the frequels again. Mm-hmm. Next week, that's right, not two weeks, next week, our episode will be talking about the one time Henry Selick made a mainly live-action film <laughs> with some stop-motion in there. It stars Brendan Fraser, Bridget Fonda, Rose McGowan, Giancarlo Esposito, yes, Gustavo Fring himself, <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg, Chris Kattan, yeah. and John Turturro as the titular wisecracking monkey. That's right, folks. We are doing Henry Selick's Monkey Bone <laughs> as a prequel. We will be discussing the <laughs> if you're, if you're biggest wondering... mistake, I would say, in his filmography. <laughs> if there's any... And if I feel like Monkey Bone is it. If you're wondering why Henry Selleck, how this is a Henry Selleck film, or why Logan said mostly live action, it's because the titular monkey is stop motion animated. It is a film that a is... A live action film with a stop motion animated character. It is like every set is designed like it's supposed to be stop motion, but it isn't. Yeah. And the only thing that really is, for the most part, is the titular monkey. Yeah. And now that we're at a point now where we're getting a bit of a Brendan Fraser renaissance, which renaissance, renaissance, I'm so excited for. I see the whale in a month. Brendan, if you were listening to this, or you're just playing your Switch, and this is on the background <laughs> for you, if you want to talk, you know, about, he always listens to us when he's playing the Switch. If Brendan Fraser listened to us, I would cry. <laughs> uh, I would love to hear you talk about Monkey Bone because that that is a film I bet no one talks to you about, and probably shouldn't because <laughs> not a great film, but. I'm excited because, I mean, you have you seen this all the time? I have not seen it. You called it the wildest, weirdest movie in his career. I can't say anything because I've never seen it. I've never, I've yet to experience Monkey Bone. This was young Logan at Hollywood Video who loved animation so much (laughs) that when he sees a cute, cool little monkey on a box, he goes, and Brendan Fraser, like post Mummy Returns, like, actually, no, it's before Mummy Returns, I think. So, like, post Mummy. Yeah, like at his at be, his height yeah. of just like you know it's like oh my gosh this has to be good especially <laughs> if it's a guy from Nightmare Before Christmas directing it and this has just been it's one of those films where like there could be a possibility that this could have been in an alternate reality my sleep paralysis demon could have been monkey bone like it's just <laughs> in the back of my brain there are just shots and scenes that like young Logan just could not um, could not believe what's happening at that yeah. time. So I can only imagine in contrast to Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline the ways that Monkey Bone feels dated. Mm. So And the and the thing too, and while we are not going to officially announce who could tag along with our prequel episode, but we might have a guest yeah, who is also a big Selick fan. Loves Coraline. Literally said, I'm so sad that I can't be there for the watch through, especially just for Coraline. But 
if the stars align, we will have a surprise guest who has also never seen Monkey Bone. This is going to be so <laughs> fun to watch. I cannot wait to show these people this fucking mess. <laughs> yeah. And it also, hey, we might like it. I don't know. I don't believe so. But uh, so, of course, since we record this live, you know, tune in on got to do it in my brain again. The 19th. The 19th. A Thank week you. from today. A week from today, because, of course, we record live. So tune in on the 19th when we do our frequel to Monkey Bone. But as always, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.